Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things. A podcast that looks at how technology is changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am me, Marianella. And I'm Ruth. How are you doing, Ruth? I'm alright. A little bit sleepy. This podcast is brought to you by Time. Just the concept of Time is sponsoring this podcast. Anyways, what are we talking about this time? We're going to talk about science fiction. Sci-fi. Why? Because a lot of the time when we talk about technology, we invoke science fiction, particularly the dystopian genre, especially when we're talking about the things that scare us about technology. Like in the UK, we actually have an NGO called Big Brother Watch. You know, there's an actual organization named after a thing, a concept from the novel 1984. And I find that quite fascinating, like how much the science fiction novels actually are influencing our reality. So yeah, that that was kind of what I was thinking about. We also talk about a sci-fi related concept, the utopia, when we talk about technology, particularly when we're trying to sell technology. So you have the computer in your pocket and like space travel and how the future should look like for the Elon Musks of the world. We're also calling back to a lot of the concepts of sci-fi, maybe not the dystopian one, but, you know, like what the future could look like and be like. So sci-fi has been a central part in the creation of the present. Yeah. And it's been that way for a really long time because, you know, utopia is just a really old word. You know, it means no place in Greek. It's a very old satirical concept, but it still comes back to that idea of people trying to imagine the future. What was that uh, Madeline Ashby quote? What you tell me about your utopia tells me way more about you than it does about the future. Yeah. So basically your utopia, which is like if your ideal world looks a certain way, for example, I don't know if you had this experience of movies or books, you start reading and it's like, wait a second, there's only white people here. And if this is the best case scenario, what happened to the rest of the people? Oh my God, whose utopia is this? Yeah. And that's kind of also what we wanted to talk about with bringing in a science fiction writer onto the podcast. So we're going to be interviewing someone today. We're interviewing Deji Bryce Ulukutun. And who is this awesome person? He's a writer. He wrote a book, After the Flare, and we're going to hand it over to him now. Hi, Deji. It's really nice to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us a bit about who you are. Sure. My name is uh, Deji Bryce Lukatun. I'm a writer, a fiction writer, and also uh, I have a background in human rights and activism. Uh, I was fortunate to work for many years uh, for Penn America, which is a group that supports uh, free expression and writers around the world, and then moved towards the technology space as I learned that technology was impacting human rights in a big way with social media and all kinds of new tools that were allowing people to communicate better, but also presented certain threats. So I worked for Access Now for a little while, which is a great digital rights organization with a free 24-hour digital security helpline. And now I'm in the corporate world. So I work for a company called Sonos. It's an audio technology company. We make audio systems and 
it's an Internet of Things company. It's a very different uh, but also exciting space to be working in. So I try to balance the two of writing and working. It's not always easy, as you know, but I've been fortunate to be able to make the time to write stories and to learn from amazing people. In the activism space, is just such an inspiring place to work. It's challenging, but uh, the ideas that people float around are often five years in the future that you finally read about uh, in the papers uh, later. And we're like, well, we've been having this conversation all along. So it's, <laughs> it's been uh, really exciting and challenging uh, career. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it is really cool because um, the panel we saw you on RightsCon, this, was it May? Yeah, this past May, May 2018 for people listening in the future. It was super fascinating because we learned about something we've never heard before about sci-fi prototyping, um, you know, like writing fiction for like really new, new technology, as you just mentioned, and how you have to start visualizing the impacts, the potential impacts they will have with people, uh, also kind of at the same time writing stories that no one will ever see. Uh, I think one of the quotes floated was, we need something that generals of armies will read on the plane. Can you talk a little bit about this world of sci-fi prototyping? Do you, how, I don't get it. Sure, yeah. And I, I'll say out front that I am not an expert practitioner in this area. I learn about it just because I think it's fascinating. You know, one thing that I, I like about my work is I've gotten the opportunity to move from theory to practice. So something that might look good on paper when you apply it in the real world may not have as much value to people on an everyday basis. And sci-fi prototyping, that panel at RightsCon was in Toronto was convened by um, Kevin Bankston of the Open Technology Institute, Madeline Ashby, and Carl Schroeder, might be Kurt Schroeder, uh, were on the panel together. And they're really the experts. So they actually hire out their services, their science fiction authors, prolific science fiction authors. And what they do is they help people think through uh, scenario planning um, with a very strong emphasis on the future. I think it's a, an exciting thing because I do believe that storytelling, developing a narrative sh shapes our lives. And in the human rights space, I think it's very interesting to think about what might come down the road. And there are tools from the science fiction world that are really useful, like world building, thinking about how different scenarios might plan out. In the specific uh, sci-fi prototyping space, there are uh, methodologies that have been developed that they talked about at, at the panel you described, where you can sort of chart things out and uh, really look ahead. I think what the panel raised is some questions is, if you help someone think about the future, whether to develop a product or some other technology, are there ethical questions involved with that? Um, as a science fiction author, should you help the military, for example, develop a super weapon that melts everyone's brains overnight? <laughs> you know, is that the right thing to do? Is that the best that science fiction authors can offer? I was trying to pose that question because the reality is, as I mentioned, that it's hard to make a living in, in this space. And sometimes you need to go to folks who will pay you, you know, with the changes we've seen in journalism and the publishing industry. So I, I like the resourcefulness that Madeline and, and Carl were offering because I think it's uh, super helpful for them to be earn, earn a living for the amazing knowledge they've acquired and skills they've built. But for other folks, maybe it's, it's not right to kind of always go to the highest bidder. So that was, those were the kind of the questions that we were exploring in that conversation. Yeah, it was really interesting. I think this idea that, you know, you're trying to create dependable foresight and 
envision the future in a way that like as an author you can be relied on by the military or by a company as well. I thought that was really kind of bizarre in a way. It's not just coming up with fiction, but coming up with fiction that you can trust in. I've read a bunch of those that are released. So some companies are more transparent than others. Some institutions are more transparent than others. And um, Microsoft is pretty transparent about their work in that space. And I got to read some of those stories um, and I've downloaded other ones. And Yeah, it's interesting because from a narrative standpoint, you can tell the author, these are very skilled authors trying to like think through these scenarios and you can feel them like wanting to push the boundaries, um, especially what authors that are concerned with characters. So if the character is important to the story, it may not have a happy ending. And the ending may not be happy. They may not make the technology look very good. And you can feel almost in the story when they, they're like, okay, I'm being paid by this company. I should probably write the story a certain way so I get paid again and make sure that I look at the positive implications rather than the negative implications. It makes for pretty boring reading, but could be valuable for the folks who support that work, you know, for the companies or institutions that support it. Yeah, actually, that kind of fits in with the thing we were going to ask about next, which is how much we've noticed that people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos cite science fiction when they're talking about what they're creating. And a lot of the time they reference things like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or like Philip K. Dick books. But I think this is one thing that you also pointed out before, that a lot of the time this is actually science fiction that's quite dated. Like these are really classic sci-fi books as they're referred to. And they're not really contemporary science fiction. And if people are modeling their modern technology on kind of out of date science fiction, they're not really paying attention to the current thinking. And I wondered how you felt about this kind of conflict and also what the opportunity is to use more contemporary science fiction to influence these technologists, business owners, these kind of people. Yeah, that's a great question. I've participated in a collection through Arizona State University as a, in my role as a Future Tense Fellow. And I looked at um, kind of SpaceX and uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. And I came down pretty harsh, I think, on these tech titans and business titans who are looking to get rockets into space, get people into space. And I think, you know, I, I since tried to read more profiles as an author, as someone who's interested in character, try to understand someone like Jeff Bezos a little bit better, understand someone like Elon Musk a little bit better, or even Richard Branson. And I think that what I failed to acknowledge in my essay, which was more about um, uh, inequality and, and diversity in space, was how much they do truly, uh, at least Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos really true truly love science fiction. You can see that throughout their lives that it had a role. And I mean, especially Jeff Bezos being, you know, the head of the space club at Princeton when he was an undergraduate there. And they do really enjoy it. And and I think earlier science fiction, every time I open up a book from the 60s, I, I have a collection called the, the Good Old Stuff that was edited by Gordon Van Gelder. And I've reread that many times. Um, it's about sort of 60s heyday science fiction. And you're just like, wow, in terms of the imagination, many of the ideas which we're just now seeing in, in print and then also on the screen like have already been explored in very 
good detail, uh, astounding detail. I think a book that is really fantastic is uh, Samuel Delaney's Babel 17. It's a short little novel, and he explores uh, linguistics and things like that. A lot of previous science fiction authors explored uh, sexual diversity, asking those questions about what our, our, our future might look like. And I think what's missing is, even though they looked at things like uh, sexual preference and sexual diversity and gender relations, I think what was missing is that the world is really more diverse than maybe they even they realized or or were capable of writing about. And I think there are a lot of voices out there that have a lot to say, and I think have a lot to say that's valuable to their own societies, but then also to other audiences. So I write specifically about African space programs, but in my, in my novel, After the Flare, I actually looked at the Indian space program as well. And it, it was sort of like, as I looked at the Indian space program, then I had to learn about the Malaysian space program and then learn about the Zambian space program and the South African space. There's actually a lot of cultures that have not just imagined different futures, but that have actually gone and built space technology in Nigeria being one of them. So I think maybe what's missing is just how much there is out there and how rich these stories are and how much we can learn from them from people's different experiences. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily a failing on their part. I think you know science fiction inspired them to once they acquired their wealth to to put it towards these these ends. But I do think that they would probably benefit from looking at stories where maybe they get challenged a little bit and maybe where someone who looks like them isn't the hero, but maybe a side character or a walk-on character as someone who's a minority is used to being. <laughs> well, and we had the chance to check out After the Flare, your book, part of the Nigerians in Space series. Before we, we go into that, can you tell us For those who have not had the chance to read it, can you tell us a little bit about the book? So that is the second book. The first book I wrote was called Nigerians in Space. After the flare, which I won a special citation, a Philip K. Dick special citation, is imagines a, a scenario where there is a solar flare and it shorts out kind of electricity and infrastructure in European and American and where the traditional uh, economic power lays, it sort of shorts out that technology. And there's an astronaut who's stranded on the space station who needs to be rescued. So it follows a, a group of um, scientists. And um, the main character is someone who worked at NASA, who's African-American, always wanted to go to Nigeria and, and spend time in Africa and gets recruited by the Nigerian Space Agency to help build a program that will allow uh, Nigeria to, to launch a rocket quickly. There's a lot, lot of twists, and I felt it was better to be more specific. So he's not a rocket scientist. In fact, his only ro role is to build a giant simulation tank, which is like a, a giant swing pool that allows um, astronauts to do their simulations and exercises as if they're in space. This is a real thing that NASA has. That's his role. He gets pulled into the local politics in Nigeria, in northern Nigeria, Uh, where it's just a fascinating mix of cultures and becomes kind of a an adventure and thriller. Yeah, we both really enjoyed reading it, actually. And yeah, one of the things that we were thinking about was how much space is one of the core themes of science fiction. A lot of the time it's about exploring space. And then there's a lot of colonial values. And amongst that, I was thinking about the Princess of Mars classic sci-fi novel by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And it's all about this idea of colonizing, of going into other planets and making them ours. 
And I thought that the title Nigerians in Space seems to kind of instantly challenge that idea. There's something kind of really different about that. And we were wondering, like, what do you think about the way that we talk about space travel as colonizing space? That's a phrase that's still used quite a lot. And how much was that on your mind when you were writing the series? Still on my mind. (laughs) I think it's one of the profound questions of just the human experience is, you know, what areas were occupied and what areas were not, who was there beforehand, who gets to tell that story. So, you know, we can glorify the explorer, but what about the explorer who gets to the place and there's already indigenous peoples there or entire civilizations, not just uh, maybe hunter and gatherer societies, but something like Tenochtitlan or one of the great Aztecs or Incan, you know, there are so many examples of this where cultures or places were discovered and they were never really lost. So I think that's always going to be on my mind. And I think it's a question we should, we should continue to ask, even as we explore somewhere like the moon, where, uh, you know, we don't expect to find life or Mars, where there is evidence of, of life. So it just cuts to the heart of, of why we do things. And uh, especially with Africa, there's so many examples. And I try to be specific when I talk about Africa, because I it's a big place. There's a lot of countries and a lot of unique cultures. And even within those countries, so many different ethnic groups and languages. I don't say that to be politically correct, but just because having you know lived in South Africa, having a family from Nigeria and ancestry in Nigeria, it's just the richness and diversity is way more fascinating than you could possibly imagine. And when I talk about the space program and African space program, I'm talking about the Nigerian space program. I'm talking about the South African space program. I'm not talking about the Ethiopian space program. And each of these, you know, I think what's really interesting about these is the culture that incorporates space technology is going to adapt it to their own ways. And that's what I tried to explore. And after the flare, it's like, well, Nigeria may not do it exactly the same. Why do they have to have a white, you know, white has a practical and physical reasons for being color of a spaceship why does theirs have to be white why does the, the chairs have to be exactly like <laughs> chairs that came before there's an efficiency thing but i think there's just so much opportunity for really amazing innovation in those spaces and lessons that we've learned as humanity in just making lives for ourselves so i think uh, colonization getting back to your original question colonization you know when you think you're going to a place that hasn't been touched before does that relieve us of certain responsibilities, even a place like Mars or Io or, you know, moving even beyond the solar system? And uh, that's something I think about a lot. Not just that, but what are the journeys, you know, when Columbus was sailing across the seas? Uh, one, Hollywood has is, is sort of tried to dramatize those voyages and what it was like to be on board. But I think that's another drama is the, the actual journey itself and what that means and what life will be like there. So these are, those are things that I'm actually looking at and I'm, I'm writing a few things um, in that area because I don't think those questions will go away even as we sort out some of this technology. Yeah, I'm glad you're mentioning like indigenous literature, sci-fi. I, was, I just have an, a tiny anecdote. I was at a, a class at SFU and one of my classmates was studying indigenous sci-fi. We were, this was in the context of a colonialism class. And um, and she did mention uh, something that kind of changed the way I saw sci-fi since, 
which was like for so many people, the apocalypse already happened. So how do you write when that, when you know that, right? And uh, then Ruth also introduced me to the phrase, the dystopia is here, it's, it's just not evenly distributed by William Gibson. So just, I got thinking about, you know, what about people, entire cultures who's already seen the apocalypse and with sci-fi really often going into that, like, oh, how, how does the future look like? What does the dystopia look like? And I think it's just, those are really interesting questions. So we wanted to ask you, uh, how do you write science fiction knowing that for many people, the dystopia is already here? I think one of the themes of Afrofuturism, you know, which is as being celebrated more, the Black Panther being a good example of that, um, but a lot of other work by authors like Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney and coming beforehand. I think it's the right to imagine your own future. So I think that's a really important forward thinking and optimistic way of approaching this question. Dystopias, I think, are fun to think about and write about, but it's really not about whether it's a positive vision, I'm sorry, a negative vision. That's not the point. I think it's really to try to imagine a future in which you and your, your friends and family and people and your culture can thrive and survive. I think everyone has that right. And it, in terms of getting back to the original topic we were talking about in terms of scenario planning and sci-fi prototyping, that's a way to build another better world. I think science fiction brings certain tools when you use it, as I mentioned, world building, uh, character development trying to think about technology and how it might evolve or change and what that might do to people who use it. I think that's a, those are great. And if you can try to start from the point of view of what would my need to do to survive in the future? What would I want that future to look like for me or for my children or for the people who generations that come after me? I think that's really freeing. And I think what's exciting about this moment in time, and although I think the market still doesn't recognize it. So there are a few standouts like Nadia Akorafor and others. N.K. Jemisin has been getting recognition. But I still think it's totally under-supported. You know, talking with different editors and agents and publishers, I'm amazed at how many are progressive and are welcome, welcoming to the idea of authors and new voices. But really, the, the structures that they use to find those voices are the same as they've been for a long time. And there's definitely a you know, a degree of tokenism uh, that they're going to bring someone in just to tick that box, maybe get lucky and, and get a bestseller. But I think those structures are just still not right. They're not set up to really capture the range of voices. I think from a market opportunity in terms of selling books and stories and movies, I think that's a missed opportunity. But beyond that, I think for all these kids and people who want to um, just imagine themselves and look on television and don't see themselves or look in the movies, don't see themselves or look on the page and don't see, you know, don't see a reflection of themselves. That's hard. And that kills their imagination. You know, I grew up in a small town in New Jersey. One of the things that I've been learning about is the, the story of African-Americans in this place, completely buried history that uh, two you know, courageous women had to go out and figure out on their own, pour through archives and, learn about how involved with the land and how they had actually shaped, their families had shaped the land and this town. But it's common experience in the U.S. at least that if you are a minority, if you're a person of color, and certainly an indigenous person, and I, I had the good fortune to work with the Navajo Nation, 
um, many years back, you know, you're erased from that conversation. And it's not an act of erasing where you're like, oh, wait, you know, this paragraph says this and they scratch out my name. No, you're just not there. And that is really hard. That is really hard on your imagination. It's really hard on envisioning a better future for yourself. So the people who can surpass that and move beyond that, I think are really extraordinary individuals. I don't think we should expect everyone to do that. I don't think everyone has the tools to do that or the ability or the time to imagine themselves outside. Someone like Octavia Butler is, is going to be rare, you know, a true pioneer or someone like N.K. Jemison. We can't expect people to be these kind of like heroes just to tell their own story. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of positive movement as well. You know, I was able to sell the option rights for After the Flare and Nigerians in Space to a, a film studio, um, which shows there's interest. I think there's other movement for other authors like uh, Malka Odair and uh, her brother, uh, Daniel Jose Odair, great authors. There's a lot of positive stuff, but I think there's a lot more work to be done. I'm loving all of these book recommendations you're throwing out for listeners. I'm also just going to totally plus one N.K. Jemison. I am absolutely obsessed with the Broken Earth trilogy. And I might even go as far to say they're the best books I've ever read. I just think they're fantastic. So like, that's my total recommendation. Yeah, I agreed. I, I think what's interesting is, you know, N.K. Jemison in her award speeches, you know, has been talking about how she was, actively discouraged from writing the stories. People cast them as if they're African-American, Afrofuturism stories. That doesn't really come in until much later. You read the story as a story. And I think for me, the part that I found the most enjoyable was just her knowledge and kind of creativity around geology. <laughs> Stones and earth and seismology, earthquakes, and, you know, it's just brilliant. So I think it's interesting how, you know, people get put into certain boxes. Like, actually, no, that's just a really cool, like, gem story. You know, if you like stones and rocks, you're going to love this story. And most people like stones and rocks. Yeah, I mean, someone, I was just recommended it to a friend. I feel like now we're going, for people who haven't listened, it's a really interesting world setting in a world that's plagued by earthquakes, which has a sort of cycle of these come and go and change the weather. And there's a certain group of people who have power over the earth, but are also ostracized by society. So that's like a base setting, but some really, really interesting stuff about like how that world works. I was going to ask as a sort of final question, what do you think is really great about science fiction as a genre? And I feel like in some ways you've kind of covered it, but would love you to speak more about what you think science fiction is like offering the world. Yeah, I do think it's to imagine different futures. It's to allow you to experience other cultures and ways of thinking, especially if you love characters. And let's face it, we live in a, a world where uh, technology is present. It's a huge part of our lives. It's not necessarily evenly distributed, but it's here to stay. Even with a flare, um, there will be flare-resistant technology. There will be technology that responds to the flare. So I think not all science fiction involves technology, but it is a big part. And it's a way to sort of grapple with how it affects us in our lives. I like even thinking from the standpoint of a robot or an android or some creature that's so different. So I think there are a lot of reasons. 
if you just want to imagine yourself in a spaceship, but you actually don't like turbulence on an airplane, that's fine. You can read it as a story. You don't have to go in a spaceship. <laughs> uh, if you want to try to imagine what it's like to be on Mars, and you don't really want to go there because the soil will kill you if you touch it, you know, you, you eat a little bit. I think that's fine. And it's also, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, there's real practical world value for it of um, trying to come up with things to help you live in the world now. So I think it's a lot of fun. I think there's so many authors, it can be overwhelming and I think keep the bar low and, and just say, find out what might be a good story. And I think what is happening and, and needs to continue to happen is the canon needs to incorporate science fiction. It needs to, should, be, should be a part of it. You know, when you have, you have to read Hemingway or James Joyce or Virginia Woolf, you should also have to read a science fiction author, you know, that'll be good because this is all about exciting the imagination and, and helping you want to engage with the world and build a better life. So I think there's a lot to it. I don't think it's for everyone, but in terms of having it on the plate and, you know, something you can choose from when you want it, I think science fiction is fantastic. Thank you so much for all of this. I'm so excited. I'm so happy that you could make the time and gave us some of your Sunday for this. Truly appreciate it. Um, if people want to find you and your books and your work online or anywhere else, where can they find you? I'm probably most active on Twitter and my screen name is, or my username is D-E-J-I-R-I-D-O-O. I spell it out because you would never be able to guess, but you can just search. You can get my books on Amazon, of course, but if you have an indie bookstore, It's always great if you can order through them. Uh, so that's uh, Nigerians in Space and um, After the Flare. I've got a piece coming out in Lightspeed magazine, which is a science fiction magazine, pretty long, over 12,000 words uh, over the next few months. So I hope you check that out. And yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk on social media, stay in touch and tell me what to read. Tell me what to watch. I'm always looking for good things to watch as well. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, go and get uh, Deji's books. They're really good. If you need a little bit of a tidbit, I remember having this weird reaction in a very good way when um, you put the image in my head, uh, Deji, of like people going to Central America, like escaping the North. And I was like, I'm from Mexico. So I was just like, I can't remember when was the last time Um, and then you do mention even a place like Yucatan, which is in Mexico. And I was like, when was the last time that I read a place that I've been to? And I know. So readers go and, and explore this because it's, it's really awesome just to have the chance to, to feel that and experience that. It's, it's pretty special. So, so thank you for writing that. Yeah, I was going to say, any last, any last comments? Anything else you want to add that you didn't get to say? But just excited about your podcast and that you're taking these issues seriously and you're also activists yourself who are walking the walk. And I think that's a really special thing that you're making the time to explore these ideas outside your work. So no, other than that, uh, thank you so much. that interview that was really interesting oh i'm so glad that we actually got to talk to a science fiction writer and talk about the impact of the fiction on real life technology it was quite something
what are you taking away? Tell me. Oh, gosh, there are a lot of things. I mean, number one, I'm really happy that we're both NK Jemison fans. So that was really nice. Number two, you know, I thought it was really interesting what he was saying about Bezos and Musk and the rest of them liking science fiction and that that's like a genuine enthusiasm. And the idea that that science fiction isn't actually that dated and there's some really great science fiction out there for them to be inspired by. I was like, oh yeah, that's a really good reminder to think about how progressive and forward-looking that science fiction, especially from the 60s, is. And I was thinking about Ursula Le Guin and other writers who talked about gender and all of that stuff progressively. So I just thought it's nice to be reminded that there was a lot of great stuff and, you know, just to kind of hope and nudge that they could read that better stuff. And also, like, yeah, the inspiration of saying, like, everyone should be reading that, but also looking for stories that they're not reading and finding different protagonists. I felt like it was generally just more optimistic, perhaps, than sometimes I am. And I've been thinking a lot about dystopia and all of these like negative visions of the future and this sci-fi prototyping and people writing fiction for the military. And I felt like I came away being really reminded about how science fiction can be optimistic as well as being dystopian. And it, it's that thing about like getting to imagine yourself in the future and changing who we see as the protagonists in our world and actually imagining better futures for ourselves or using dystopians to change how we are right now and be more optimistic because we can see what we don't want to do. So I thought all of that was quite inspiring. What about you? What did you think? I think similar to you, when I was thinking about the dystopia thing and about that little anecdotes thing that I mentioned about how a lot of sci-fi pushes us to imagine a world with like pandemics and famine and invasion and the destruction of culture and for many people that already happened so when uh, Deji said that sci-fi and dystopia also allows you to imagine worlds where your communities are resilient like how it's, it's almost like describing or telling the story of resilience, not only of ending and erasure, and it's not only doom and gloom, but also the survival aspect. So it's almost like, of course, imagining different futures, but a future where after even after acknowledging that something terrible just happened, you're still telling the story of survival and thriving and just using human and communities imagination and resourcefulness and different ways of doing things which is just to survive so i don't know i really i really enjoy that and when he obviously you might know ruth but like when uh, deji started mentioning like why does the shape of the chair has to have to be like that and i'm like exactly design so i got really excited about that too about imagining everything, not only the future, but also the way we're designing the present and just questioning, why does it have to look like this? Where am I getting this from? Does it need to be like this still? Or can I imagine something different? That's a really nice way of approaching everything, right? And I'm glad that sci-fi allows us an avenue to do so. Yeah, I really agree. Like I've been thinking so much about science fiction aesthetics actually this whole idea about how like science fiction has this this generic look that's all glossy like glass buildings and like shiny tech it's got a specific look and sometimes I find that really jarring when I look around our current world and it's like at least where I live in London 
you know, it's all Victorian housing. It feels like that future is really far away when in fact so much of the things that are in science fiction are actually here right now. They just don't have chrome surfaces. And I really like thinking about science fiction that is very different in its aesthetic. Yeah, it's saying like, okay, what's a sci-fi but where the houses still look the same. Do you know what I mean? A little bit. <laughs> Can you tell me a different example? That- yeah, I mean, I guess I've been thinking a lot about, okay, Minority Report, it's one of my favorite films, and how Minority Report has all of these things, like there's the little spiders with the eyes that go into the door and then like look in people's faces to scan their irises. And there's precogs, these people who live in tanks and envision future murders. And all of that stuff feels like so far away. But in the actual reality of our world, we do have spies in our homes in the form of computer companies who have to retain our web browsing history. And we do and have... Alexa and, Go- and, yeah, and Google. Yeah, Alexa and, and Google. And instead of precogs, we have... AI algorithms that predict high crime areas. You know, we are interested in doing predictions of crime with software and just not with human beings. And I think all of that stuff is actually really familiar, but we don't recognize that we've got a dystopia right now because we still have brick houses. We don't have chrome surfaces. We don't have all of the shininess and the creepiness that is the Minority Report aesthetic. It's not all in monochrome, but it's actually here. And I've been wondering a lot about whether or not we can really identify dangerous technology and whether like the fact that we're still in that same environment, you know, a hundred years and a lot of our architecture hasn't changed. So in a hundred years in the future, why would our architecture have changed at all? Anyway, you know, when we're inventing science fiction, maybe it will all just look the same, but it will be a very different world. So do you think that because the current fuckery doesn't look like the cultural imagination of dystopia, we're missing, we cannot detect it because it doesn't reassemble anything that we collectively, culturally recognize as a dystopia, as danger? Yeah, I think that... The aesthetic of science fiction films means we expect those things, pre-crime, etc., to arrive at the same time as some kind of huge change in our aesthetics. But the reality is, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral hasn't gone away in hundreds of years, so it's probably not going to go away in hundreds of years in the future. We're not going to knock down our buildings. Unless there's a big war. Enter certain cities in Europe that literally look very, very modern. And you're like, excuse me? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, aesthetics are embodied ideologies. And what do I mean by that is that everything that we design has in its DNA. Let's take the iPhone, right? One of the most, dare we say it, um, revolutionary artifacts that we've had in the last generation It's just a computer in your pocket sort of thing. The aesthetic of it, the glass, it's black brick, very 2001 Space Odyssey. Like literally that movie, Kubrick's movie, looks like it was designed at Apple and that came before the iPhone. If you take the iPhone as, a, as an artifact of the quote unquote future, 
and then you start exploring what values the student body, you cannot crack this open. And I'm holding an iPhone here. You cannot crack it open. So it's a sealed container that producing technology magic. But in previous cell phones, you could just open them and look at the inside and have the batteries. And this one is sealed. It's away and contained. You're not allowed to cross because it's only Apple's area of expertise. You cannot crack the algorithms. So I don't know, again, design embodies certain values. And I'm glad that, that you brought that up in the context of sci-fi. It just makes you think a lot about that. It's definitely a thing that uh, I've talked about many, many times. My feelings about the architecture of science fiction movies and planets and the way everywhere always seems to have the same architecture across the whole planet. And I think, what about the change and the, the buildings that lasted and the buildings that didn't? To mention the almost not obvious, but something that is not that we have been hearing a lot about, about like representation and stuff. I was fairly serious when I was kind of like conveying this very strange and unusual moment where I was reading uh, Deji's book, After the Flare, of like, it's it's amazing how me, my late 20s, I'm still shocked when I see places and characters in fiction that I recognize. I think, of course, there's a lot of Latin American literature and that's obviously full of the spaces and places that I know. But um, but something like sci-fi, admittedly, I have not read a lot of Latin American sci-fi, but to have that and also to have that in English, right? Like to have that in English and like to see, to, to read about people who are not white not only that, but people who are in places that are not the global north, yet interacting with a, a global catastrophe. So it's not just this isolated, once upon a time in this place, this is happening. You know, it's like, it's a global story from not a completely different perspective, but a different perspective, which just makes it a lot richer. It's almost like it has texture and it was fascinating. Like it's a, at, a, at an emotional level, I'm like, oh God, like, what does it mean to be imagined by other people? And that's that's so cool. Maybe when we post this up, we can share some other science fiction recommendations because there is a lot of really good books out there now that have that representation, diversity of characters that I'm trying very hard at the moment to try and broaden my own reading because I've liked science fiction for a long time. And I've realized how much of that is very like white male protagonist led. And I'm trying to do a little mini project in my reading of changing that completely. And I'm trying to read some indigenous science fiction and science fiction from African writers. So yeah, if you have recommendations in turn for us, that would be really appreciated. Thank you everybody for your time. And just if you need the footnotes, you can go to www.theintersectionofthings.com. And if you want to give us a shout out on Twitter, they can go at, at things intersect. Um, you can find us there. Ruth, where can you be found? You can find me on Twitter at Nessient. That's N-E-S-I-E-N-T. And I am at Undazed and Such. Thank you, Deji, again for chatting with us. This was awesome. Uh, music, Ruth. It's by David Mark Hucklesby. And we're continuing the tradition of talking to people with three word names. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
we'll see you next time. Yeah, see you next time.